Here we go. Today is Sunday, June 27th, 2021. I still feel like we're in the future. And this is episode 255 of the Defensive Security Podcast. We are just one episode away from what I assume will be a spectacular episode 256. That's true. That's true. And look at this. Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. How about that? Of the possible revival yeah. Of the what? What are we? What is this? 255. Of what? You didn't say the defensive. I did. Defensive security podcast. Sorry. I wasn't actually paying attention to what you're saying. That's okay. I can relate. So who are you? Who am I? My name is Jerry Bell and you are? Andrew Callett. Andy, awesome. As most of my friends call me. Good deal. So just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. But it could for the right fee. But it could. That's right. Be expensive, but yes. Very, very. I drink the fancy coffee. <laughs> All right. So welcome back uh, two weeks in a row. Hopefully this is the start of a, a new trend. So we have a lineup of stories to talk about tonight. The first one comes from Reuters, and the title is U.S. SEC Probe SolarWinds Clients Over Cyber Breach Disclosures. So in the in the U.S., for those who are uh, unaware, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, has a, a, a number of years ago, in fact, they released some requirements around uh, disclosing material impacts resulting from cyber attacks. And yes, I'm using the word cyber because I know it grinds some people's gears, so I'm just having fun with it. Just, just roll with it. Um, anyway, you... Companies who are publicly traded need to disclose on their uh, either annual or or, uh, quarterly reports as appropriate anything that is material to the uh, potential material impact of their stock price, including uh, security breaches. And the SEC is now going after companies who they believe may have been impacted by the SolarWinds breach, but not disclosed it in their uh, quarterly filings. And not only that, but they're also asking companies if there were any opportunities for their insiders to have been trading stock as a result. Oh, but isn't there some wiggle room in the terms material or possibly material and breach? Certainly, certainly yes. And that's, I mean, that that's why we have lawyers. Right. Right. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't know how to define what is material to my potential earnings. You know, is it, hey, a couple of my machines got a virus? Somebody fell for a phishing attack that I quickly contained? Uh, well, it, it, so I think the, the obvious in, intent of the rule is to disclose anything that uh, were it to be made public would have an impact on your stock. So if, you know, I think there's a reasonable test to say if somebody had, you know, if their workstation got infected, would that cause your 
stock price to, to change in, you know, in isolation. Clearly, if that led to some, you know, major outbreak that caused your company to implode, that would be a different situation. But that's, you know, that's how, um, that's how, how it's structured. But you, you are on the right thread there. Um, if, you know, particularly given some of the, the stuff we've talked about in the past where, you know, long ago, if a company was breached, you know, it's pretty problematic for your stock price, but that's not necessarily been so lately. And so then you have to ask the question, well, if a breach doesn't impact your stock price, is it really a reportable problem? Yeah, I think somebody did some research and boy, I'm going to butcher this. So don't take this as any sort of fact, but of major breaches announced of public companies and what their stock price was six months later and how it seemed it it had a very negligible impact on their stock overall, maybe in the short term, like for a few days, but it yep. seems like the stock rebounds pretty quick. So anyway, the, the, the net point is the SEC is, is starting to look at these things now, especially with some of these larger scale uh, breaches where the, you know, the, the quote customer list may be more public than you know, would otherwise be the case. I suspect, by the way, we're, we're going to start seeing this become more of a problem in other contexts too, like the you know the, some of these ransomware attacks, where the the ransomware gang is no longer just like a uh, you know a, a, a perpetrator to victim connection. A lot of times, these things are are you know kind of publicly held out. Uh, you know, the there's some of these ransomware gangs that are actually now in fact selling early indications of who's about to be ransomware so that you can, as a, you know, a, also a bad person can trade stock on that information, which is kind of contrary to what we just talked about. But, um, you know, I, I would assume that the SEC is, as they continue to uh, evolve their maturity, will probably be on the lookout for companies that are being impacted by, uh, by ransomware too. So if you are a public company, it, it does pay to be aware of your obligations uh, to the SEC and other, other regulations and um, retain your legal counsel and make sure you do the right thing. It seems like a real pain in the butt to be a legal company or a public company. Having worked for public companies for a very long time, I can absolutely concur. Hey, what do you say we go out to Vegas and we start an odds-making business of betting on what the next public company is that's going to have a massive breach? <laughs> like breach futures? Yeah, but in as a bet, like, you know, like sports betting. <laughs> well, the problem with that is that it's a, um, it's kind of an unfair, it's not a game of chance. So Why are you ruining my plans? <laughs> of course it's not. You're taking half of my revenue stream and publicizing it. Come on now. Uh, fair enough. All right. Well, well, but you know, you know what's interesting. Just as a quick aside, there is something to be said. There was some interesting research about when people bet money on an outcome or a possible outcome as a group, they seem to be more accurate than people trying to forecast or project or predict things that are going to happen without any money. So, boy, I wish I could find this research. But 
it had to do with people trying to war game out uh, what a foreign adversary might do and some other things like that. And what they found was this had nothing to do with, with cyber. It's just pure, like how the mind works when they bet some amount of money, they were more accurate in their predictions than when they didn't bet, even if it was like a dollar. Interesting. There's, and, um, th- there's, there's been some, I forget the name of it, but I think it was Richard Thaler ran a, um, ran a, uh, I think, I think his book called, there's a book called super forecasting. I believe it was by Richard Thaler. It talks about this. It doesn't have the, the, you know, monetary betting. And then of course there's the, the old concept of the wisdom of crowds, which basically says that, you know, multiple people who are making independent guesses, if you average out the guesses, they are typically really close to the, to the real value. But yeah, it's interesting, interesting thought. Yeah. I'm completely derailing us. I'll have to find it, but it was a really interesting sort of, uh, and some people were leveraging this a while ago of like, you know, betting on certain things happening in the world, like black swan events, uh, based on this sort of thing. So I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll have to find it. We'll talk about it next show. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, so anyway, they're just circling back to tie that out. There were 18,000, you know, roughly 18,000 apparent victims of the solar winds Orion hack. So, Potentially lots of uh, lots of homework for the SEC to go and, and chase down. The next story we have comes from databreachtoday.com, and it's related. Uh, title is, uh, Firewall Rules Could Have Blunted SolarWinds Malware. That comes from the CISA team here in the U.S., which apparently is still leaderless because Congress was unable to uh, uh, confirm the new leader of the new uh, director of CISA. So, uh, so the long, the long and the short of it is uh, given the way that the solar winds Orion hack went down, you know, the, just to recap solar winds, Orion's piece of software that you install inside your organization to do different management stuff. Uh, the, the bad guys broke into solar winds, the company and planted some malware in the code that was eventually distributed to customers. That code made a call out to a command and control system, which then allowed the adversary to, you know, come come in through the back door, normal reverse shell at that point. What you know, what we've seen and talked about in the past. The problem, you know, by the way, is that in the case of solar winds, you know, typically that infrastructure is used to do pretty important monitoring and command and control functions inside your organization. So it typically has, you know, broad visibility network wise and potentially even uh, logical access slash credential wise. So the, you know, the bad guys had a great, a great potential run. The, uh, the, the point of this is, and it's interesting that a, uh, I think it was a Senator was, really grilling the the CISA about this, a really effective mitigation would have been egress filtering. Yeah, and I got to tell you, the best technical discussions are between senators and government agencies. On, on, on really highly technical matters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's going to go well. 
Anyway, carry but on. they're not. But they're not wrong. They do point out that egress filtering is quite difficult for a lot of organizations to implement. And they also go on to point out that it's it's a little amazing that it, it apparently impacted eighteen thousand companies and really only only came to light after FireEye noticed that somebody had been stealing their code or stealing some of their tools. Yeah. So our anomaly detection tools are failing badly. Yeah, in both in government and in commercial spaces. Yeah. So I was curious about this, and I am certainly not an expert on this malware, but I was curious about the command and control channel that they were talking about. And so I did a little research just before the show, so please take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but I was reading some of the FireEye research, and it looks like it, it initially starts with uh, DNS-based, looking for certain uh, domain-generated algorithm driven uh, CNC DNS hits that if it's present, it will give you, you know, certain uh, behavior. And then it seems to be doing HTTPS calls. Mm -hmm. Now, what I couldn't figure out was if it was grabbing the proxy settings, if there were any, or if this was pure HTTPS. Uh, and I couldn't, I wasn't quite sure if it was smart enough to grab the proxy and if it was authenticated proxy, if it was smart enough to grab that. But there's a lot of things in there where you could have and trip this up. Uh, for instance, I know a, a, a number of the DNS security tools will watch for lookups of domain generated, uh, algorithm, well, domain generation algorithm derived domains that are older or younger than a certain amount of time and spot that and could have flagged that. I, you know, for instance, Umbrella, which I think is owned by Cisco now, does that. Would it have worked in this case? I don't know. I would have liked to try it. Uh, but in theory, on paper, it should have grabbed it. In theory, on paper, most people probably have a web proxy, I think. Uh, most major companies probably do. It's pretty standard equipment. So would this have been a firewall rule or would this have gone over the proxy? And what are your proxy settings that would have stopped this? An, an uncategorized net new domain? Do you allow traffic to that? Maybe, maybe not. So I don't know. I, I kind of was, and this is why I, I was a little, little late starting here today. I was kind of digging down the rabbit hole of this. I don't know that I agree with this discretion that, that they're having. I don't know if outbound firewall rules would have stopped this. I think you're thinking about it wrong. Well, that's not the first time. <laughs> so, so uh, typically web proxies are uh, a lot of organizations think about web proxies for their um, you know, their their user population, which is often segmented on the different networks or, or or whatnot. Whereas this, you know, this was impacting you know, quote, yeah, quote, infrastructure, yeah, which which a lot of times companies don't force through a proxy. But what what some they're do. some don't some do some yeah. don't. I, I agree with that. What they're really saying here is that, and, and by the way, this is <laughs> humorously, I guess, a requirement of uh, of, of both FISMA and FedRAMP to do to do um, you know least privileged network in, the, in concept. This isn't about a proxy or or um, authenticated proxy. This is about only allowing, in this very narrow case, only allowing Solar Winds to be able to connect out of your network to the to the specific systems it needs, like let's say at solarwinds.com to be able to get its update. Yeah, Everything else who, is blocked. Who's going to know and keep that up to date without breaking well, stuff? Well, that's, that's their point, is that right. it, on the one hand, 
it is a highly effective prophylactic against this kind of attack. But on the other hand, it's Jared, damn near impossible. This is a family show, first off. <laughs> but, you know, you're right. However, going back to categorization of capabilities, like let's say we are driving this through some sort of DNS security tool or proxy, like whether it's a transparency proxy even. Brand new domains being generated by DGA can be detected. And there are a number of, of web proxies that have things like, hey, if this domain isn't older than 90 days, don't allow it. Or if we haven't profiled this domain with a clear, it's okay, don't allow it. So it doesn't have to be as explicit as, you know, allow listing known good sites only. You can do some things that would have fought this. But the fact of the matter is, as far as we know, well, Here's what we don't know. We don't know how many people got this and stopped it and blocked it by these sorts of basic, not basic, but default defenses that didn't allow this to call out. In other words, like they got the malware in through the software update, but it never connected to CNC. I don't know that we know that. So it's tough to know how effective those those techniques are. In theory, they should work. But here's a great real world example of if it did work and it flagged an alert, did nobody see it? Nobody care? Was did it just go in the bit bucket? Did it not flag an alert? And all of these assumptions I'm making didn't work. This is why, as a quick aside, I rail about, you know, pwned own is great. I love that, but I would love to see two versions of it. One stock as they do today, and two with these controls that say they can help with zero day type attacks like this and see how well they do. That's a different story. I know. So I, point being. <laughs> In theory, from what I'm reading, some of these defenses that these vendors tout should have caught this, but didn't. Maybe. I don't yeah, know. We, that's the thing. We don't we don't know for sure whether they did or didn't. However, we I, I think it's a fairly safe bet. It 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 appears all indications are, obviously not a certainty, but all indications are that the first solar winds heard of this was from FireEye. Right. And so you, you would think that if some organization had, let's say, you know, the umbrella, uh, DNS umbrella uh, inspection going on and notified or noticed something, they could have pretty easily tracked back and notified SolarWinds, but that didn't apparently happen. So I, I, right. um, I'm concerned. Now, having said that, what you described in my mind is a much more scalable uh, approach, right? I mean, no, no doubt about it. And the point of this article, one of the points of the article is that while it is a super effective, while egress filtering is very effective at blocking this, it's also really, really hard to implement. So if you can do something like what you just described, that's a much better solution, but it is also pretty easy to get around. Right. I mean, egress blocking, whether it's through a proxy or firewalls, or, is incredibly uh, admin intensive. And most companies are going to shed that very quickly. It's just not viable. It doesn't scale fast enough. That, that is uh, absolutely true. And, I mean, what if this were in a cloud environment? How tight are those outbound controls? In, in, in cloud, you know, you, it, at least from a, from a tenant side, all the same options are available to you. I mean, unless unless you're doing something like totally cloud native and you know um, your platform is a service based and 
you know, you're, you're trying to implement egress filtering and relying on the provider itself to do those things. Um, you, you should have the same kinds of capabilities and limitations. You know, I, I, I do think while it is difficult in, in, uh, you know, painstaking and potentially, uh, uh ripe for for problems it's probably worth doing now the one of the um maybe this is where you were going with cloud environments like if if um let's just hypothesize that solar winds called out to a solar wind server update server that was hosted on akamai i mean there's almost no hope <laughs> no no it and it- most of the stuff that I'm looking at here is more after the initial malware came out via SolarWinds, and this was the CNC calls out to non-SolarWinds um, infrastructure to do the command and control of the malware and then start to do nasty things. So this is now, after you've gotten the backdoor implanted, this is control that backdoor and connections from the bad guys into that backdoor and that sort of stuff. So now it's it's separated from SolarWinds infrastructure entirely. So... Now you're off what would be a trusted entity. Anyway. Yeah, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to game out in my mind is so it, let's let's just say we've accepted the difficulty of maintaining firewall rule egress firewall rules. Okay, mm-hmm. we've we've said you know what it is hard, but we're going to do it anyway. Okay, and and so we have the SolarWinds server. And this SolarWinds server needs to periodically connect to SolarWinds.com to right. get updates. It's a legitimate activity. Right. We want to allow it. But SolarWinds.com, and this is may or may not be actually the case, is hosted or is fronted by Akamai. Right. And so now it is potentially hundreds or thousands of different potential Akamai. What do you whitelist? Yeah. What What do you whitelist? Yeah. And and so that that I think becomes a a big big headwind. Uh, and 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 by the way, like if you were a savvy adversary, wouldn't you host your command and control on Akamai? Maybe. Is that what you're doing, Jerry? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> no, it's not what I'm doing. Clearly, because you're still working for the man. <laughs> All right, next story. Uh, This is really quite interesting. Uh, Follow-up from a long, long time ago. Uh, The full story, this comes from Wired.com, the full story of the stunning RSA hack can finally be told. Uh, So there's been obviously lots and lots and lots written about the attack against RSA back in 2011. Uh, A lot of it, as it turns out, was, was pretty... Uh, pretty accurate. What's changed now, and the reason we're hearing about this again, is that the 10-year-long non-disclosure agreement that RSA had with uh, many of their executives and incident response staff has just expired. Dun dun dun. So now we have some, you know, some some additional details that we were not previously aware of. Um. A lot of the things that we, we, as I mentioned, a lot of the things we previously heard were true. The, the, uh, the initial breach did originate from one of their employees receiving a, a spreadsheet that looked like 
a salary plan file. It was a poison ivy rat that was dropped on uh, the victim's workstation. And at the time, you know, this again was, you know, 10 years ago. So things were different. Windows 10 wasn't out. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, you know, things like Mimi cats were not quite as in vogue, I guess I'll say it. So the, the, the attack techniques that the adversary was using was pretty novel for the time, I would say. Uh, but again, a lot of these things we knew about, there was, uh, an interesting implication that while RSA had done a lot to isolate the seed files, which were ultimately what the bad, what the bad guys stole, was supposed to be on this uh, air-gapped network, except they ran a server that reached into the air-gapped network and pulled the seed files out under their corporate network periodically so they could burn those seed files uh, to a CD and help... Uh, customers uh, recover their seed files if their CDs were lost or stolen or broken or whatever. So interesting, uh, interesting stuff. There was some uh, s some kind of spy versus spy type stuff where apparently at one point uh, the RSA security team actually had effectively caught up with, uh, all this is again allegedly, had allegedly caught up with the adversary and got to the point where they could see where the seed files were being uh, were being exfiltrated from, and the, conveniently enough, there were credentials, FTP credentials for the um, you know, for the system that in, hosted in Rackspace by the the bad guys. Uh, this RSA IT person logged in and was just about to delete the. Uh, the seed files that had had been copied out of the RSA environment, and but they were too late; had been moved out. If only they had done outbound firewall rules. Clearly, clearly. Um, some additional interesting discussion was about uh, kind of the back and forth, and I I I didn't really realize there was this much uh, disagreement, but. Um, that the executives at RSA, even today, assert that they were not involved in the very, you know, subsequently, very high-profile breach of Lockheed Martin. But Lockheed Martin, to this day, still asserts that the RSA breach was, in fact, a significant contributing factor to their breach. You mean Lockheed Martin, who makes aircraft that... Uh, suspiciously, the Chinese have directly copied. Yes, nobody. By the way, nobody is disagreeing that the Lockheed breach happened. Although Lockheed says that nothing of importance was stolen, so I'm assuming that means their airplane designs were not that important. I guess that's, what, <laughs> that's how I'm interpreting their statements. Wow. Well, you know, hey, I, so I, I mean, it's their statements, not my statements. I'm factually just, correct. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're uh, our, our, sorry, Lockheed's you know, still asserts that nothing uh, of value was, was stolen, uh, but they Hang do. On, I'm, I'm crossing Lockheed off my potential employer's list. <laughs> but they do, they do. Um, well, I, I, I assume, you know, RSA and Lockheed and many others have learned from, uh, from their mistakes. Jerry, a uh, lawyer from Lockheed's on line three. <laughs> 
<laughs> Damn, that was fast. They good. <laughs> they good. Sorry, go on. Uh, so anyhow, um, I, I missed that there was this disagreement. I I thought there was pretty broad consensus that RSA was in fact the you know part of the chain that allowed Lockheed to be uh, compromised. So apparently there is a disagreement though. Yeah, there was a couple interesting things I picked up out of this. Uh, one that I thought was really interesting was very early and it talks about the initial detection was a sysadmin who noticed something weird and went and bugged the security guys to take a look at it and they dismissed him at first. Right. Like, which is bad, right? But the sysadmin was persistent enough to get them to look. So kudos to the sysadmin and all sysadmins who are, uh, you know, who know their systems well enough to detect something weird and bring it up. The other thing I thought was interesting is that they suspected there was actually two different bad actors in their environment Mm -hmm. of different skill sets. And they, they speculated that there was the initial low skill bad actor who probably got the initial footprint or, 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 you know, foothold. And then a higher skilled actor was in there at the same time, better or more fully exploiting the environment, which is also interesting. So, you know, this goes to, to show that some of these narratives of, of trying to show who did what and show it was this organization and this nation state is really difficult to get right because of these sorts of nuances of weird situations where you, you could have multiple threat actors in your environment at the same time. Uh, you know, so once again, attribution is very difficult and I think it's a lot more black art and I think it, it's causing perverse incentives to make these declarative statements that are really tough to make in my mind that probably wouldn't stand up in a court of law, but that's just my non-legal opinion. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that they thought multiple folks were running around. Yeah. When I read that, it lined up with some of the recent discussions that that have been running around about some of the more advanced threat actors, which is that they, they tend to have multiple different, uh, obviously not, no idea what the what the reality of the situation is, but there have been assertions in the recent past that some of these threat actors have like multiple tiers, like they've got a you know tier one group and a tier two group and a tier three group, and the tier one group is off kind of like just farming, and and once they once they land somewhere and you know they they tend to be lower skill, but they're off just trying to find you know, more targets. So there's more of them. Once they find something, then it ends up getting taken over by, you know, by the, the higher skill teams. So, well, you got to give a career path to your bad guys. I mean, they want fulfillment and opportunity for advancement, just like anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder like, wants... <laughs> do they have like career conversations? Like, you know, going to, with their so currently you're a level three minion. What do you see about yourself trying to get up to level two minion? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What's your career path? How are you getting better? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so it, it, very interesting read. Uh, I, I will say not a lot of like 
revolutionary new details, uh, but a lot of confirmation of things that we we did know. Some some interesting details about the disagreement between Lockheed and RSA that I mentioned. Uh, it's as you just mentioned, Andy, the uh, the the sysadmin that saw the the odd behavior. Uh, which you know again highlights highlights the importance of you know if it looks wrong it it likely is so, and is worth investigating. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a good closure. By the way, this this um, this particular incident was one of the things that really got me to start this show. So, and look how perfectly safe the internet is as a result. Absolutely. <laughs> We've done great. <laughs> Mission accomplished. That's right. We need need to Photoshop me in front of that banner on the <laughs> aircraft carrier. All right. Uh, last story for today comes from Bleeping Computer. Title is Microsoft admits to signing rootkit malware and supply chain fiasco. Oops. Yeah, that. I think you could just summarize the whole story up as saying, oops. So uh, Microsoft for some time now, actually I think since Vista has required any uh, kernel drivers to be signed by Microsoft. When this first hit, I saw there was a lot of consternation. Oh my gosh, did Microsoft's signing keys get stolen? But what apparently happened was the bad guys here followed the process. They followed the... They followed the the process to get the malware signed by Microsoft, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, and that I mean, their customer service is top notch. I mean, look how responsive they are. They did great. They they uh, they, they have an SLA, and damn it, they're going to meet it. So uh, th- this piece of malware is called NetFilter. Uh, there's an allegation by Microsoft that it's affecting the quote gaming community and there's a lot of speculation on like uh, online right now about what the heck that means are they talking about you know like the Xbox ecosystem or are they talking about uh, this you know being associated with some uh, gaming controller or or some piece of uh, of gaming software really unclear exactly you know what what this is tied to, uh, based based on that description. But you know this is a, a kind of an interesting thing. It's also really no indication how it is landing on computers. But once it's there, it has some pretty kind of rudimentary or or not rudimentary, but common tactics. It calls out to a website, of course, in China, asking if there are updates. And, uh, you know, if there's an update, it, of course, pulls down a, a new signed version of itself to uh, to continue the infection going. So this is, I, you know, I've been thinking about this. This is one of those things that's really difficult as a, um, as a company to defend yourself against because you're implicitly trusting somebody like Microsoft. Uh, it, in, you know, unfortunately, your defense is fall back to uh, protecting against the initial intrusion that allows this piece of malware to end up in your environment. And then, I hate to say it, but back to egress filtering. 
I think you should write a book, The Joy of Egress Filtering. I think I'm How gonna... to Stop Worrying and Love Your Firewall. <laughs> I, I do wonder, like, if the average company started looking at, you know, started implementing some kind of basic egress filters, like, how long would it take the average organization to get through all of the all of the cruft and how many bad things will they find? So we grew up in Michigan and in Michigan there's a bridge. It's five miles long between the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula of Michigan. Huge bridge. Wonder of the world. It takes them seven years to paint that bridge and as soon as they're done they start over. Mm-hmm. Same thing. True. The, the problem is that nobody knows like you and I have designed networks and run networks with a bunch of internal segmentation and trying to get people to understand what their applications actually did and talked to and the requirements is so difficult. It's so painful, especially because a lot of times they don't know, they don't want to know, they can't figure it out, they don't want to look it up. So you start monitoring the behavior of the application in your logs. But how do you know if something isn't a quarterly update or a monthly or an annual or whatever? And then you break something. And as soon as you break something, people start screaming that security broke something and then you have to turn it off. It's true. That's true. And if you introduce something and you, you run the risk of profiling bad behavior. Well, that's true. If, if you're, if you're, if you're profiling already in place, CNC <laughs> and you, Hey, it looks, Hey, it's, it's trusting everything implicitly. Like, how do you know you're in a greenfield safe, trusted environment? I don't know. I'm sure we'll get lots of emails with, uh, um, offers of AI enabled stuff to, to, to help automate this. That's true. Really the only people who listen to the show are salespeople trying to sell stuff anyway. That's true. There's a, there's a few other people that like don't have a choice, but are we still on the, uh, the various state penitentiary punishment lists for, yeah. And if I feel a little bad because they haven't, they've had to listen to the same thing over and over again for a long time. But now, mm-hmm. but now they have new material, so that's true. There's that. Fair. I feel like we're descending rapidly into the abyss of absurdity. Yes, yes, we crossed that threshold. All right. So that was uh, that was all the stories for today. Uh, as a reminder, you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg L E R G. You can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Link, although I don't do much on Twitter lately. We'll get you back. I got to get back, yeah. You're busy. We'll get you less busy. Getting there. I'm here yeah. twice in tw- you know, two weeks I in know, a row. So. And I'm very thankful. So, like, hey. Hey, speaking of thankful, I forgot to say this last week, and I feel bad. But thank you to our Patreon donors, especially those who stuck with us while we went dark for months and months and months on end. Yeah, thank you. Like, like terrible, terrible content providers, because, man, I feel bad. I didn't even to think about that so thank you guys we really do appreciate it and uh it helps cover the cost of the server and the bandwidth and people still download the show even when we were dark so um it, it went to a good home so thank you i think we we have we have to think about something special to do for uh for patreon donors 
How about putting out quality content? That'd be a first start. Uh, that's that seems like a bridge too far. <laughs> anyway, that's true. That's anyway, true. getting back into the groove. Yes, but thanks, guys. Appreciate you as always. Hey, hit me up on the Twitters. Uh, we're, we we love to chat. So, and I've got time. Jerry doesn't. So, I'm more responsive than he is. That's right. Because I'm nice. <laughs> that's right. You are nice. All right. Have a good week, everyone. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.